Hey everyone, you get a special bonus episode this week. We were invited by the super awesome Laurel Hechenova and Audrey Nee to join them on their show, Podcast of a Lady on Fire, which is a cathartic exploration of the filmmaking, themes, and community involved in Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Which, if you don't know what that is, I have four words for you. French lesbian period drama. It's a little different than the movies we usually talk about, but we both love this movie so much, and it was incredibly fun hanging out and chatting with Laurel and Audrey. Here's the episode for you to enjoy, too. We'll cover historical attitudes towards abortion. The Lacedaemonian leap. And usefully toxic teas. Enjoy! Hi, everybody. Welcome to Podcast of a Lady on Fire, where we explore the filmmaking themes and community involved in Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We are your hosts. I'm Laurel Hachinova. And I am Audrey Nee. Couple of the usual quick disclaimers before we dive in. Neither of us speak French. Je suis désolé. JK, Laurel <laughs> speaks French, apparently. <laughs> I was going to say un poquito. Never mind. It's wow. fine. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and this episode will contain spoilers. And today we have two special guests with us. We've got Deepa, a pediatric cardiologist and pop culture enthusiast. And we also have Jen, a speculative fiction writer and editor, Erswell MD. And they are doctors who train together and are now hosts of the fantastic podcast Docs Watch, the show where real doctors tell you what's real, what's not, and what's maybe possible in your favorite movies and TV shows. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, having, for us. having us. And why do we have doctors on our podcast today? Great question. We have doctors because we want to talk about some of the abortion and abortion-related things in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So thanks for stepping in. <laughs> Happy to help. So yeah, we have been chatting with Deepa for, I think, several months at this point. Months. Since May. Months. It's been many months. Which is like years in epidemic time. So we've known Deepa for many years. <laughs> old, old friends. We go back way far. <laughs> Yeah, we actually went to school together <laughs> with Jen, too. And no, all of that's a lie. Deepa also messaged us about the flying ointment potentially being Belladonna pretty early on. And then we listened to their podcast and became fans. So that's how this happened. Crossover episode. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. <laughs> Me just desperate for other people who have seen Portrait and enjoy it. <laughs> oh, same. Yeah. Let's get started with some quick intro questions. These help us and the audience understand your early impressions of and relationship to the film. So we're just going to ask you guys a few questions to start. And the first one is, how did you first hear about the film? All right, I'll go first and Jen will go second on all of the questions. Deepa has to go first because she's the context for all of my answers. There you go. <laughs> That's, That's true. That's so I like to keep up with movies and stuff like that. I'm like big on Oscar trivia and that sort of nonsense. And so I remember hearing about this film probably in the fall. There was like a piece that I saw on Twitter that just said something about an incredible French lesbian period drama. And I sort of was like, huh, interesting. And I had like filed it away in my brain for a while. Then... I don't know, time passed and then COVID happened and then we were all in lockdown. And then I remember seeing something about it was going to be on Hulu. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time I watched it. I think it was that Friday that it was released on Hulu, which if I am not mistaken, was either March 26th or 27th. I don't know how you even remember that kind of thing. We should know that. Oh, man. Okay. It was either the 26th or 27th of March. And that's the first time I saw it. Yeah, that's how I had heard about it. And then basically my life's not been the same since. <laughs> I heard about it from Deepa, 
who watched the movie and then immediately texted me and was like, French lesbian period drama, you have to watch this. And I was like, <laughs> definitely. And then I kind of didn't for a while because I'm really bad about keeping up with movies and watching movies in general. And then once we kind of started having a whole conversation about podcast of A Lady on Fire, I was like, I better watch this movie before <laughs> yeah. we actually have a phone call about it. So I watched it like two weeks ago. So pretty recently. Yes. So, Deepa, you saw it on Hulu. I guess, Jen, you also saw it on Hulu. Yeah, I also saw it on Hulu. I know. Both of us are very sad. I don't Actually, I won't speak for Jen, but I'm very sad that I haven't seen it in the movie theater. <laughs> oh, same. Yeah. Yeah, that would be amazing. Deepa does have the fancy, like, Blu-ray. Oh, nice. Collector's edition or something. I don't remember what it's criterion, called. Criterion. Criterion edition. Collection. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Deepa, you had something about when you first saw it, though? Yes. It was actually, like, even worse than just not seeing it in a movie theater. <laughs> so that Friday that it came out, I was like, okay, I'll put it on. And just for some context, because I work in the hospital, I was actually still going to work. So my early part of lockdown didn't necessarily change my routine logistically, mm-hmm. just emotionally. <laughs> yeah. Everything was much different. But I started watching it and I did a dumb thing which I started cooking dinner at the same time (laughs) and so I was sort of like pausing it and going back and forth and then by the time I was done cooking dinner and I sat down it was like 40% of the way into the movie so I only really concentrated on the last like 60% and then I once it was done I was like what did I do this movie is incredible I have not paid enough attention to it I felt so terrible it was already like 11 o'clock at night so I was like you know what I'm not working tomorrow, and I just, like, (laughs) basically planned my entire day around sitting down and watching it, like, in the dark, no distractions. And so I saw it for the first time, like, one and a half times because I didn't really (laughs) watch it. And then I continued to watch it, I think, like, every day for at least, like, three more days because that's a thing that I do is if I think generally I have to watch movies more than once but Mm -hmm. this one I had to watch like extra times and then I have continued to watch it multiple times since (laughs) I think Kumail Nanjiani had a tweet that was like I think I was watching one of my favorite movies for the first time and like I'm sad that I'm never going to get to see it for the first time again or something like that. Deepa's still sad about it she talks about it. (laughs) I'm still so sad about my (laughs) cooking adventure. Literally after I watched it for the first time I texted her immediately and was like what did you do to me? <laughs> Her response is basically like, I can't believe you get to watch it for the first time. Yeah. Pay attention the entire time. Yeah, yeah. So she's still sad about it. I feel like we're all jealous of all the people in the world who have not seen it. You know? I know. You get to see it for the first time. Yeah. 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 That's why I tell everybody. And I'm like, don't watch it with any distractions. Make sure it's dark. Don't watch it on your computer. Yeah. That's what Deepa said to me <laughs> before I watched it. And I was definitely... So, like, it is very difficult for me to kind of to sit through pretty much any movie without fidgeting with stuff or playing on my phone or, like, doing something. Mm-hmm. So Deepa said all of that to me, and then I was like, okay, and then just, like, had my fidget stuff, like, ready to go just yeah. in case. <laughs> and then basically, like, I started playing the movie, and within, like, the first line, I was like, I have to put everything down and pay attention now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because she's like, she's a teacher and she's like, pay attention, look at yeah. me, not to, yeah. But then even just like the opening sequence with the sketch marks and everything, I was like, whoa, this is different. And then I just stopped doing other stuff. Wow. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you about this because it's been such a long time since I've seen it for the first time. And so it's like hearing this freshness (laughs) is very nice. Vicarious freshness. Yeah. (laughs) 
So can you both talk a little bit more about your first impressions as you were watching it? Yeah. One of the things that struck me first was how beautiful it was visually. Mm-hmm. I did my fellowship with somebody who actually had majored in like film studies in college. And we started talking about this one day. He's like, one of the things that's great about film is it's kind of like it's putting together the best of all different types of art. So like visual, sound, text, Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. You're trying to put it all together and then you get this product. But obviously like film is a visual medium. So that's like the thing that I was struck by the most. And then when I like thought about it a lot, I think the thing that I love the most about it is how kind of bare everything is. Mm -hmm. And yet it's still so powerful and leaves such an intense impression on you. Mm -hmm. It's not really like overly decorated, the scenes, the sets, anything like that. There's not a ton of dialogue. I think Celine has said that the script itself was only like 69 pages or something like that. And the film is like two hours long. So yeah, yeah. And also just like the story itself is not overwrought. There's so much there without trying too hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was mostly it. And the two actresses, I think, were like so good. Well, actually, all the actors in the film were all good, but like especially Eloise and Marianne, they were so good. And mm-hmm. I hadn't watched a lot of foreign films in a long time, I don't, not for any particular reason, but just hadn't. And then since this happened, I have now, I'm proud to say, completed a 150-day streak on Duolingo trying to learn French. <laughs> nice. So that someday I can watch the movie without having to read it at all. Yeah, yeah. I feel like at this point you have seen it what like twenty something times. Yeah, probably. I probably could. So just you're probably watch it. already at the point where you could watch the movie without yeah, reading yeah. your portrait fluent. So you know very specific French now. Yeah, <laughs> very formal. Like if someone randomly on the streets of Paris said "retourne à toi," you know, you would be like, "What?" <laughs> Talking to everybody in a formal tense, and they'll be like, "What's wrong with you?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I mean, when I watched it, it definitely struck me as a movie that I'd never seen before in a way that, like, I can't even. I don't even know that I can at this point articulate what the experience was like, except that I just knew that I was watching something really different, essentially, that I had never Mm -hmm. experienced before. And it's 100% like probably the most beautiful movie I've ever seen. And I was just struck by the fact that like literally every still from it could be an oil painting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. From the period. Like it looks really amazing. Like what Deepa said that is really interesting is we talk a lot about how, or a lot of people talk about how movies are... A visual medium, like you said, and that seems very obvious, but we discussed this later about how a lot of movies, especially in the US, I think when we watch them, you could almost not watch them and still know everything that's happening because like so much is just said to you mm-hmm. through dialogue, through people narrating their actions, through like voiceovers, etc. But like this mm-hmm. was one of those movies where you it's like the acting happened on almost a micro level through just the tiny tightening around like a mouth or like the slight clenching mm-hmm. of fingers against fabric. And it's like really amazing to see something like that because that means that somebody really knew exactly what they wanted to do and then really trusted the audience to understand that experience and understand what was like trying to be said. And I don't think I've seen anything like that mm-hmm. possibly ever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I tried to think of other movies that are like as beautiful. The only other two that like come to the front of my mind were Moonlight and Roma was really beautiful too. Mm-hmm, but those mm-hmm. two and I, I like I literally couldn't think of anything else. I was like, I don't know. There's nothing. There's no movies after this. Everything after I've seen this is bad. So. <laughs> yeah. There are no other movies. I, mean, I texted Deepa immediately afterwards and I was basically like, I don't even know what to do with myself right now. Like, <laughs> Welcome yeah, totally. to the club. Like, I need to like lay down on the ground and stare at the ceiling for a little bit because I just don't know what to do anymore. We need to list out the symptoms of like post-portrait watching. Oh, you yeah. found the right people. We can create a syndrome. 
Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. Right it's here. a whole right. separate podcast. I think <laughs> yeah. we also need like a recovery kit for people. Like anyone who oh, hasn't seen it yet, we can send them this care package that's like, this is what you need after. But also maybe just, just lie down, elevate your feet. Yeah, for you know? sure. <laughs> well, like maybe like a little pillow. <laughs> An embroidered pillow. Okay. <laughs> so were there any other moments in the film where you felt like, holy fucking shit, I'm seeing something revolutionary? It seemed like for you, Jen, you almost felt like that right away. Yeah. I mean, I the opening in of itself, I think, was already just like so subdued and well done and interesting that I was paying attention. But I think if I had to pick like a moment when I was like, okay, this is different, it was probably when she is sitting in front of her class and posing and she's talking about like how to look at a figure and draw. And then mm. she says something about like the tightening of fingers on fabric uh-huh. and she like just does it like very slightly and I was like whoa and then I just had to like <laughs> yeah. pay attention really closely from that point on and I think that was probably the moment that really told me that this was going to be a very different movie mm-hmm. and I mean I don't know that I can pinpoint any other specific scenes but that was definitely the impression that stuck with me. I think for me the first scene where I was like oh this is going to be great was when after Marianne arrives to the castle whatever you want to call it and she has to take off all of her wet clothes and she's the scene that shot where she's just by the fire and she's like naked and smoking the pipe and her two canvases are drying I was like man what a life like (laughs) (laughs) at that point I was like I am in for this and then I think the other two there's a couple of other scenes that were just I mean of course the scene where it's like if you're looking at me who am I looking at that scene Mm -hmm. I thought was just like so good. And I've seen on YouTube like many analyses of that scene. And like every time I watch the film, I like see a new thing in that scene. And then also the scene where they get into a fight, I think is like quite a good scene. And I've watched it over and over and over. And I still feel like I don't 100% get it. But I think that that's the point is like Mm -hmm. it has many, many meanings. The various lines of dialogue that they go through, which is not that many in their little tiff i usually fast forward through that scene like i can't (laughs) i can't watch them fight like over and over and over yeah even just the initial viewing i was just like no this is so terrible (laughs) yeah 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 totally i will say uh, one thing that i did do after i saw the film because i i have gone through this for many months now the post portrait (laughs) syndrome which is that i've watched all of adele and l and noemi marilan's films that i can find Mm -hmm. and both of them are extremely gifted criers Mm. <laughs> very gifted mm, criers. Yeah. So I think that's also part of the reason why that particular scene is like so good and like so affecting is because they're both really good at crying. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Like I kind of want to see a super cut of them crying and I kind of really don't. <laughs> like, I-, I think their crying craft is very specific to them too, right? Because like in America, we have Claire Danes and Julianne Moore who have this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This crying face that's like next level. But for them, I feel like it's very (laughs) subdued and effective in a different way. Yeah. Adele has like a, she's very good at producing like a single tear Ah. and then also doing, (laughs) and also doing a lip quiver. She has a very particular like Drew Barrymore weird lip quiver thing Uh that she does. And that shows up in various other films as well. I think the fact that you can actually just watch them slowly have their eyes get slightly more red. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like around. Just heck? like that is just impressive. I'm like, how? I don't understand. I'm like, is this CGI? <laughs> right. And like, you know, it's not because this was not an expensive movie. And I they know. had to spend it all on right. their like fancy cameras and lighting. 
I think they spent the CGI budget on removing the surfers in the surf. <laughs> or the beach. Off the yeah, Britney yeah. coast. But then also reddening the eyes occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, if that's what they did it, good job. Because that was amazing. Yeah. Great use of that budget. It was really good. All right. Shall we dive in? Yeah. Before we do that, just a quick disclaimer. In this episode, we will be talking about medical conditions, treatments, and procedures that are not meant to be medical advice or diagnosis. Always consult your doctor, and not your podcast host, if you have a medical question, concern, or ailment. Also, just a heads up, after reviewing this episode, we realized that we used gendered language throughout the following discussion. We recognize that trans, non-binary, and genderqueer people can get pregnant, so we wanted to apologize if we hurt anyone through our careless use of language. Okay, let's dive in. So maybe we should start with a brief overview of abortion in the East. <laughs> a brief overview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just starting with the lightweight topic of the brief overview of abortion in the 18th century France, or just yeah. 18th century period. I think one of the important things to point out in general is that abortion conceptually is not modern. Like abortion has kind of always been a part of women's reproductive health. It's basically probably always been practiced as long as there were women. And I think the first recorded evidence that they had of an induced abortion dates to like Egypt in 1500s BC. And that's just the first recorded one. But in the 18th century, the 18th century in general is kind of an interesting period of time for medicine. And I think that's reflected a lot in both this movie and then just in attitudes about abortion in general. Prior to like the 18th century, abortion wasn't necessarily accepted, but it was commonly practiced and it was secretly accepted, I guess, not like openly accepted, but everybody knew mm -hmm. that this was just like something that happened. By that happened, is it more like self-induced abortions were a thing or were there people who you went to like in this context? There have pretty much always been people mm -hmm. that you've gone to who had the expertise. There is evidence of like self-induced abortions too. However much expertise you could have had at the time. Yeah, yeah. Right. right, right. So it was like an open secret, but not quite. Yeah. And at the time, I think one of the most important things to understand and one of the things that we talk a lot about on our podcast is about like the history of medicine and that sort of thing. And prior to really the 19th century, I would maybe you can you can include parts of the 18th century in this too. But all parts of women's reproductive health, women's health in general, especially pregnancy and all that stuff, was something that was mostly practiced by midwives, so other women. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until sort of like the professionalization of medicine, which really happened intensely in the 19th century, that that sort of shifted. And then sort of with that, attitudes towards pregnancy and other women's health issues changed a lot because obviously mm. when you have men practicing, it's a different perspective altogether. Right. And then the other interesting part is that kind of like Jen said, there's lots of historical evidence and like documentation of people not necessarily saying that they're ending a pregnancy, but saying that they're doing things like inducing a period. Oh, Even right. back to like the ancient Greeks, you can find different sorts of remedies and herbal preparations, things like that, that we'll talk about later. But in ancient Chinese texts and ancient Indian texts all over the world. So this was like a thing that was done. And then it sort of like goes with the history of the spread of Christianity and Catholicism and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. So where portrait takes place is kind of in this weird, not weird, but just kind of like dark period where you're having this like transition where you're starting to have... Yeah, it's like an in-between. Yeah, it's like the in-between place. It's a liminal time. Mm -hmm. So people aren't 
necessarily documenting things as much as they were even like a few hundred years before because attitudes towards things like ending pregnancy or women having any kind of agency over their own reproductive health, those attitudes are changing. And so it's actually quite hard to find documentation at this particular time. There's all this stuff that's written by the ancient Greeks, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes later, like in the 19th century. But they exist in sort of like this weird dark period, which was interesting to me only because it kind of follows a little bit of like the painters also, Mm. which was that like you also have this dark period where women painters aren't like you don't have documentation of them as much. Right. And is one of the other themes of the film. Right. right, right. The late 18th century was kind of when a lot of Western Europe started legally criminalizing abortion Mm. at pretty much all stages of pregnancy, whereas before it was kind of like you didn't really you weren't considered pregnant essentially until what was called the quickening, which was when you could feel the fetus move, which is generally around like 16 to 20 weeks of pregnancy. And then kind of in the late 18th century, France, I think, made abortion criminal in like 1791 or something like that. And then England made it criminal in like 1803 or something like that. So it became like actively criminalized then pretty much at all points. And then the Catholic Church then declared that ensoulment or the fetus gaining a soul happened at conception instead of Mm, at the quickening. Right. Kind of in like the 19th century also. So it's all like during this period of time that the movie takes place is kind of around this time when a lot of these actual like legal things were codified about abortion being criminal. Yep. And those attitudes in France actually changed quite a bit in the 19th century. But this is kind of during that period of time when everybody was moving towards being pretty anti-abortion in Western Europe. Wasn't it decriminalized officially during the French Revolution, which I think was a decade after this film takes place, right? I don't don't remember. remember. (laughs) I don't actually remember if they actually, when it was codified in law, like when it was Mm-hmm. uncodified i don't know yeah. what the opposite of codified is but, <laughs> yeah but in france it was interesting too because they historically has also had this attitude towards abortion where they had a more essentially practical and kind of progressive view of it more quickly mm-hmm. than a lot of other countries in western europe because even though they criminalized it in like 1790 by like the latter half of the 19th century, they were starting to talk about it in terms of family planning hmm. for married women mm-hmm. as just like because of industrialization and the fact that the procedure was actually pretty safe. The social views on it started shifting pretty radically compared to like the rest of the continent. I wonder if any of that came around because of population and the plague and having to like, isn't that why the catacombs were built eventually? It was because they had no place to bury all of the bodies at some point. And so maybe they were like, hey, maybe we should slow down on the babies. (laughs) Maybe we should slow down on the babies. (laughs) Yeah, when you look at the history of abortion, it's very interesting because at different periods of time, whether or not it is socially acceptable, socially known, something that you do in secret or out in the open also has to do with who the people are that are seeking it. And you can Mm -hmm. definitely see Mm -hmm. that where at certain points in the history of certain countries, it was mostly sort of unmarried women who were getting pregnant and and didn't desire to have a child. Especially with the social stigma attached to that being an unmarried woman Mm -hmm. who had a child during that period of time. Yep. And then at other points, it was something that wealthier women did. And it was, you know, accepted as something that happened to aristocratic women or that they could seek out if they desired it too. So who is asking 
to terminate their mm-hmm. pregnancy also determines how society sort of views it and decides to do things about it. Yeah. And then contextually, it's also related to like the rise of women's rights movements and feminism and backlash against that frequently takes the shape of being anti-reproductive health, essentially. Mm-hmm. On that, on the stigma, is how did you interpret that line that Sophie says where she's, so she's first talking to Marianne about the fact that she hasn't gotten her period in three mm-hmm. months and she says that she doesn't want a child and she said she was going to wait until the countess was gone to take care of it. Do you think it was a stigma thing or just a practical sort of like, uh, she keeps me busy, so. <laughs> I interpret it as just practical. I kind of interpret it as both. Yeah, I think she probably didn't want the countess to necessarily know. And then she was like, oh, what a, you know, here's my chance. She's going out of town for five right, days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also think historically, though, like, Women who were in Sophie's position, if they did get pregnant outside of wedlock, that did not bode well for them Mm -hmm. in terms of their employment and stuff. It's probably easier for her also to seek an abortion when the countess is gone because then she doesn't have to explain, like, where she's going and stuff. Right. Because I don't know how much downtime, like, Sophie has normally. Right, yeah. When the countess is there. Like, I don't know if she has to account for where she goes. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't learn about Sophie that much because it's Marianne's memory. Right, yeah. Right. (laughs) Okay, so... We've established that she missed her period three times, which means how far along would she be at this point? It's always a hard question. It's always like a little bit hard to say, but if she said that she's missed three periods. The conversation is like, oh, I haven't had my monthlies. And she's like, how many? And she says three. Right. Mm -hmm. And so usually we count how pregnant somebody is based on their last period. So Sophie would be like four months pregnant, probably, Mm -hmm. assuming like normal menstrual cycles, et cetera. Her last period would have been a month before like the first missed one. So we would probably say that she is four months pregnant. Mm -hmm. Right. She's fairly pregnant-ish. The other thing is that she's quite young. I remember you guys talked about this in your Sophie episode. She's like 17 or something. She's like 17, yeah. Yeah. So it's always really hard when you're that young because – Adolescents can have highly irregular periods for like many years after Mm -hmm. starting their first menses. And so, you know, missing three for Sophie could be anywhere from like the three months that we say. It could be six months. (laughs) Actually, three full months. It could be like a few weeks. So, but we did estimate that she's probably on the order of, I don't know, maybe 14 to 16 weeks pregnant. Okay. With the full term gestation being 40 weeks, just in case. People don't. Gestation is the word we use for pregnancy. Ah, please excuse us if we use <laughs> this is great. words that are normal to us. No, no, no. Sorry. This is great. Yeah, we do this a lot. The not defining things, I mean. So. We can raise our hands as well. It's like, please <laughs> tell us um, what that means. Okay, so she is between several weeks to potentially six months pregnant. Probably up to four months pregnant. Okay, okay. I just threw yeah. out six months because yeah. I definitely knew people in high school that you know, got their period every two months. So Right, right, right. exactly. Yeah, so yeah. it's probably, I would say probably up to four months pregnant. Okay. And so it's unclear actually if she knows that, if she's felt anything, like the quickening like we mentioned before. It's mm-hmm. unclear if that's actually what's happening. She doesn't appear to be particularly pregnant mm-hmm. and she's handling her pregnancy well, right. at least from Marianne's perspective. Right. Yeah. But yeah. They don't show her vomiting at No, exactly. <laughs> this is the worst part of pregnancy. Thank goodness. That is like one of my... Biggest pet peeve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's why I brought it up. I love that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so like the quickening, like we said, happens at like 16 to 20 ish weeks of gestation. And the younger you are, slash, like if this is your first pregnancy, oftentimes it happens later. 
Mm, so okay. very likely she has has not felt the quickening. Yeah. The quickening. All right. Which sounds like a horror film. I know, the quickening. I mean, yeah, it could be a horror film for some I mean, people. depending on how your desire to be pregnant, it could be a horror film. Yeah. Side note, I feel like we should link to your Prangent episode because I feel like it's <laughs> yeah. actually a really good primer for this. That's true. That's true. It's very... In mm-hmm, a sense. Yeah. So you can play birth trope bingo. Ooh. <laughs> yes, you can play birth trope bingo. I don't think you would win bingo in portrait, though. I was going to say, Thank yeah. goodness. Yeah. Portrait does such a good job of not doing any of those things. Yeah, we did a bunch of episodes about pregnancy and birth, mainly because of actually the lack of that content generally available to the public. I feel like birth and pregnancy are this black hole that people just understand through watching movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, anything to do with women's health, I feel like, is a black hole that most yeah. people yeah. don't understand. You just go to that subreddit that's like how women work or whatever it is that people say random things that they think about how periods work and it's just incredibly strange how women work that's great oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) it's like anything that has to do with our reproductive health is either magical or terrifying exactly sometimes both yeah yeah so they're fantastical and you can't possibly understand the miracle of it who could possibly know it's horrifying and it's just terrible and body (laughs) horror so yeah okay but we do know that she does not want this pregnancy that's correct she's very clear about it which is i think is great yeah yeah she doesn't waver it's not like oh it's not part of the exactly it's unwrought she's just sort of like i don't want to be pregnant you're like great Let's move on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's like a whole separate movie where Marianne is counseling her, right? If someone else was <laughs> right. <directing> yeah. <laughs> that movie is on Lifetime. Jeez. <laughs> oh, so in order to induce her period again, they mm-hmm. try three things. The running was first, yeah. right? Right. Right. The running. Okay. First. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. Running to terminate a pregnancy. Yeah. So first of all, it's very hard to make this happen, but... What was interesting to me is that the idea of just strenuous physical activity of some variety is something that was has been found in lots of ancient texts as a recommendation of how to end a pregnancy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Running, jumping, diving. That's like a pretty common recommendation throughout mm. history. It seems like a very mechanical approach to right, taking exactly. care of this. So one of the like trivia tidbits is Hippocrates which, of course, is one of the OGs of medicine. (laughs) I mean, Hippocratic Oath and whatnot. He has written, there's some of his texts that talk about this thing called the, the, I think it's, oh boy, here we go, Lacedaemonian Leap. Nice. Which is jumping such that your heels hit your butt. So like jumping in the air and then your heels have to hit your butt. As a recommendation, huh. I do that every day in high intensity <laughs> inter- interval. And are you pregnant? As a matter of fact, I am not. It must be working. <laughs> yeah, there you go. hundred percent not pregnant. Hundred percent works. Don't they just call those butt kicks? It has to be at the same time, though. The two heels at the same time, oh, not just okay. like yeah, high yeah. knees sort of thing. Like in, yeah. it's not butt kickers. Yeah. No. <laughs> so I think the idea here is that you're trying to induce like a really really high stress state and basically cause. This is our theory. Yeah, this sorry, is kind this of our is theory. Not Mm-hmm. Because before we actually get into it, let me just say this is not medical advice. And also, like a specific disclaimer for the running thing exercise is safe in pregnancy. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So we're just going to get it out of the way that this does not actually work generally <laughs> because exercise is totally safe in pregnancy. Vigorous exercise is actually safe in pregnancy. It's kind of about like what you're used to already. Mm-hmm. So, for example, mm-hmm. if you are a long distance marathon runner, you can continue to do that during pregnancy. 
if you are not a long distance marathon runner, maybe don't pick it up. Yeah, <laughs> maybe now's not the time. I don't recommend that like you take up marathon running like immediately, like once you get pregnant, because it's kind of about like what your body is used to. And so, like from that perspective, I could see how like if you are if you live a lifestyle such that you don't have time, like we do time now to go exercise like for 30 minutes or whatever a day running up and down a beach like that is probably like very yeah taxing for you because that's not something that sophie does regularly i mean running on the beach have you ever ran on sand it's not easy yeah yes it's taxing for everybody but if you don't do it at all like that's a lot especially in like 20 pounds of clothing like what she's wearing and like weird buckly shoes Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But even if it's not something you're used to, like, this is not generally going to induce an abortion. Mm -hmm. But hypothetically, like, (laughs) this is what we're kind of thinking the mechanism is behind it. Yeah, which is that, so progesterone is the hormone that is, like, the most important when you're, like, in pregnancy. Pro means, like, Go. It basically maintains your pregnancy mm-hmm. in early pregnancy. Right. So progesterone is a super important hormone. It's actually – anyway. So what we think happens – could happen theoretically. So when you have like a high state of inflammation and stress, which could theoretically happen if you do a ton, a ton, a ton of strenuous physical activity and are like super dehydrated. Right. And you're not conditioned for maybe it. Maybe you're like a little too hot. This should be like your whole body aches. You're breathing fast. Everything is bad. What it can do is high states of inflammation – can reduce the sensitivity of the progesterone receptor, which means that what the sort of embryo is seeing on the other side is not enough. And that sort of withdrawal or Mm. like lack of seeing that progesterone as well as it was before is what could theoretically induce a spontaneous abortion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And something that that kind of goes with this is that there's scientific research that shows that people who have a history of recurrent miscarriage or recurrent spontaneous abortion have shown to have sometimes lower levels of expression of the progesterone receptor to begin with. And that might be part of the reason why. Progesterone helps sort of the lining of your uterus stay like intact and good during the pregnancy. I call progesterone the pregnancy hype man because that's like, <laughs> it's there to like hype the pregnancy. That's so good. To be like, we are doing this <laughs> at the beginning. Especially at the beginning. That's a yeah. great visual, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm just imagining progesterone like running around. I mean, it know, basically and saying like, that. hey, what's up, everybody? <laughs> We're yes. going to do There's this. a fetus in here. <laughs> yeah. 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 I say fetus. We say, <laughs> we're still pregnant. Fetus. We're still pregnant. Fetus. We're still pregnant. Yeah. So that's kind of like hypothetically what we think the mechanism might be behind something like this. And why she might have heard something like, oh, I just ran around a bunch. Like she, yeah. also she's quite young. Right. Like anecdotally, this might yeah. have happened. But again, generally, exercise, totally yeah. safe in pregnancy. Talk to your OB-GYN. Yes. Always talk to your doctor. This is not medical advice, but... Here we are. I'm just going to jump to the hanging thing. Do you think this is the same thing then? Like just creating that stress? Yeah, I think so. I think it was like a nighttime indoor activity that they could do, Mm -hmm. which was that she was hanging. And I mean, I haven't tried monkey bars in a very long time, but hanging from monkey bars for long periods of time is not that easy. I was more concerned about the fact that she fell from the ceiling onto a stool. Yeah. Not that it would necessarily induce her abortion, (laughs) but more just that, like, she should be, like, poor Sophie (laughs) is, like, so injured from that. Like, she could have landed on her neck. Like, so many things could have happened. If Marianne is five foot nine and Sophie's 
Like, I don't know. Like, how high in the air was she? I watched this again. Her feet are, like, closer to, like, where Marianne's waist is. So she's probably only maybe, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, three or so feet off the ground. Only. But she does fall, like, onto a stool. So there's, like, a lot of things in Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Abdominal trauma definitely can cause a spontaneous abortion. So that is something that could have happened from the fall. But, like, it didn't right, yeah, in this no. case. So. And I don't think that's yeah. the point of hanging is so that, like, eventually you fall. <laughs> no, I don't yeah. think that's what she was trying <laughs> to do. All right. The last exercise was trying to find ingredients for tea. Is that an exercise? <laughs> I was going to say, I was like... <laughs> It seemed very taxing to be in that field, so I see it as. Like, I mean, they're wandering through. A field. I mean, Heloise is like barely even looking. She's just like standing there, yeah, looking around. I was like, "You are not yeah. helpful." <laughs> she's like, "I just wanted to hang out with you guys. I didn't actually yeah. want to help." She's literally like brushing with the plants. Yeah. She's like, "Uh, yeah, just like petting the." It does look very soft. That yeah, field that they're in. she's like the kid on the soccer team who's like sitting in the grass and just like pulling flowers out. That just, was like, me, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. That was. We can all relate to that, yeah. (laughs) What do you think, what were they looking for? All right, so this is what I intensely became obsessed with. Deepa dove deep into this. Oh, great. The extent of my research and how intensely I got into this led me to email a professor at NC State by the name of John Riddle. He's like an emeritus professor, fancy man, (laughs) who is an expert on the history of medicine and specifically the history of abortion and contraception that sort of thing. Because when I started researching what could the plant have been, the truth is there's a vast array of plants, herbal concoctions, things like that, that have been used over the course of time to do exactly this, which was to end pregnancies or in some cases what they would call say induce menstruation. So basically I was too overwhelmed with the options and I was like, I need somebody to just like narrow it down. So one thing we do see is that we see the scene where Marianne has picked up some flowers. She shows it to Sophie and it seems to have like yellow flowers. It's like some kind of plant with like little yellow flowers. Mm -hmm. And then Sophie says something like, oh, it has to be before it's flowered. So she actually wants the plant that doesn't have flowers. So what I did was I actually found a lot of this professor's Dr. Riddle's books online. And then I was like, you know what? Let me just email him. So I actually emailed him. (laughs) This is great. It is an interesting book. It's called Eve's Herbs. Yeah, there's Eve's Herbs. And then he also has like a book that's called like Contraception and Abortion from the Ancient World to the Renaissance or something like that. Like that title is less catchy. (laughs) It's less catchy than Eve's Herbs. So anyway, I emailed him and I said, hey, you don't know me, (laughs) but I came across your books and this is what I'm interested in. You know, there's this young girl and it's 18th century France. And she's trying to figure out some flowers. To What plant do you think it would be? So he actually gave me, so what I'll talk about, he gave me two good candidates. And then there's a couple that we'll talk about just because of their historical importance. So there's two plants that it could be. So one of them is called Artemisia vulgaris, which is also called mugwort. So Artemisia on its own has like a lot of varieties. And some do have yellow flowers, some have purple mm. flowers, some have no flowers. But he thought this was probably a good candidate for what Sophie was probably looking for. The actual mugwort itself, Artemisia vulgaris, doesn't really have a flower. So in my head, I was thinking maybe that's what she's talking Mm. about is like she thinks, oh, the plant can't have flowered. And what she really means is that the plant doesn't have flowers. And that's what somebody talked to her about. But basically, this plant itself has like a long history of use for like various, various medicinal purposes. Most of these things that you look up that are used to like induce abortions 
or cause menstruation. Also do things like ease menstrual pain. They can fix like gastrointestinal problems, all Mm -hmm. kinds of Mm -hmm. things. So a lot of like medicines back in the day were, were literally that quote unquote medicines. They're just like concoctions that did things to some people, did other things to other people. Therefore, people thought that it just did all the things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of them have like multiple medicinal properties. And so like they right. have a lot of different applications. And they have different components. Right. So the idea of how the mugwort <laughs> on its own probably works. So there was, I found some information on a chemistry sort of website. But the idea is that there's something in the mugwort, a substance that potentially could stimulate some uterine contraction or harm like umbilical cells or be toxic to umbilical cells in like a human fetus. And that was like the idea of possibly the way that it maybe induced miscarriages or induced abortions back in the day. And that's from making a tea out of it. And then there are some other uses for it where it also acts as like a muscle relaxant. So it could also like ease the pain at the same time, Mm. which might be a way that it sort of became into use for this particular reason. So that was one. And it can have a yellow flower. And you can use it as a tea form Mm. or as like a suppository, which... You know, I wouldn't want to do, but anyway, you can make a tea out of it. Mm-hmm. Also, none of you should do any of this. Like, don't do this. Oh, yes. Nobody do any of this. Yeah. Another one is called Aristolochia clematitis, which is funny because Lochia... It's another wart. It's another wart. It's Ooh. called birth wart. <laughs> Lochia actually means pregnancy, I believe. Oh, shoot. Yeah. I think that's a Greek yeah. derivative meaning like delivery or something it's like, like that. It's like specifically named for this. Oh, yeah. The Latin name is, yeah. Aristos means very good and locos means delivery or childbirth. So it was used like at the ends of pregnancies too, but this could be used for abortions. And this has been documented by like Greek doctors and things like that of there was this one pharmacologist doctor, everybody was everything back then, named Dioscorides. And he said that it quote unquote expels the menstrua and fetus when taken as a drink with pepper and myrrh. It works just the same when inserted as a suppository. Just the same. (laughs) Just the same. I mean, if it works exactly the same, then do it the other way. (laughs) You're right. As tea. Right. Dr. Riddle had recommended this one because it has a yellow flower. And it's actually, I think, used for like decorative plants Hmm. now. But the flower doesn't look like exactly how we want it to look. It's kind of like this weird like pitcher-shaped flower. They talk about how bugs get stuck in it for like multiple days and get all of the pollen and then they can escape to go like pollinate (laughs) the plant. But this medication can be quite nephrotoxic or like toxic to your kidneys. And so one of the things that's like a common thread through all of these plants that people might have used as like in a tea formulation or something like that is that very rarely or if at all, they don't just do one thing. Like that's what modern pharmacology is, is kind of like finding a chemical or finding the actual molecule. Right. You find Mm -hmm. the compound in a plant or whatever that's doing the thing that you want it to do. And then you isolate that Mm -hmm. and then that turns into medicine. But if you use the entire plant, you're getting all of the effects from all of the different Mm -hmm. things that are there. Yeah. So these are can be very toxic in other ways very toxic to the liver, very toxic to the kidneys. And it honestly might be that that toxicity is what leads to having a miscarriage, kind of like what we talked about before. Yeah, because that's a high stress. If you have high stress, if you have high inflammation, maybe you're having the abortion not because of the thing that the plant is doing to the fetus, the uterus, whatever. It's actually just like making you incredibly sick. And this is what happens. The other plants that are interesting that also have yellow flowers is 
rue. I think it, um, I think which the is, plant might be rue. Just like looking at the plant, and I think it might be rue. I too. think so too. It looks like rue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah, so rue is another really good one. Also, it's also like very widely available. It's all over the world. It's uh, yellow flowering. It's also highly toxic. And so it's been similarly used to induce uterine contraction, induce miscarriages, abortions, has been used in the ancient world, also mentioned, of course, with Dr. Riddle's book. And the thing about it is it can be very toxic to the liver, I believe, and can cause a lot of a lot of badness. Rue is actually something that I think generally people say like is a poisonous plant and you just shouldn't shouldn't ingest it ever in any way. So no suppository, is that what you're saying? <laughs> no suppository for that one. I'm sure someone's tried it. Oh yeah. In history. Another one is tansy is another plant that has yellow flowers, similarly very toxic at high doses. And then the last one I'll mention is pennyroyal because pennyroyal if you look this up comes up a lot in terms of like a tea that people use. So there's a very important distinction here between pennyroyal tea and pennyroyal oil. Mm. Pennyroyal in general is like in the spearmint family. So I can imagine that it's like probably quite pleasant to drink pennyroyal tea because it tastes like Mm -hmm. mint. And this was the tea that Dr. Riddle, when he was consulted about how a young woman in the Civil War era America would have potentially sought to have an abortion by ingesting a tea, he had said that pennyroyal tea is probably what she would have used and you have to drink it multiple times over multiple days that's also the other like caveat to this because we only see sophie drinking mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. time and so pennyroyal yeah it's part of the mint family people use it a lot to like flavor their food and all that kind of stuff and obviously it smells nice because it smells like mint but they don't know exactly what it does people think that it might cause uterine contraction but people have used it as a remedy so you drink multiple doses of pennyroyal over many days now pennyroyal oil is extremely toxic. And unfortunately, you can buy it at stores and things like that as like aromatherapy because it's in the mint family. But it does to your liver similar to what like ingesting too much Tylenol does to your liver. And so it can be very, very toxic to the liver, which is generally not good. (laughs) But Pennyroyal doesn't really look like the plant. Yeah, it's kind of like a purpley flower, right? Yeah. And it's like mint. I don't know. She didn't really smell it. (laughs) Yeah, nice catch. So those are the teas. I don't think you have to always smell mint tea if it is there. (laughs) No, she didn't smell the plant. Right, right, right. She didn't smell the plant when they were picking it up. I feel like if you know you're looking for a mint. That's a good point. Like the best way to know that you've Mm. gotten it is I thought you were talking about the tea and I was like, you can't like just be mad at someone for not sniffing their tea (laughs) that they're about to drink. (laughs) Very stringent requirements. So anyways, there's many, many things it could be. But those were the ones that are probably the most likely. So I would say, yeah. I think Rue I vote my vote. Rue's a good... Uh, Fine. <laughs> I vote for Rue as well. <laughs> so it seems to not have worked in portrait. Right. Yes. What's the efficacy for abortion tea? I think part of the reason why it didn't work is, well, we only see her take it one right. time. Right. And so when you are making a tea, especially, no matter what you've done, you've already diluted right. the thing that is going to do the thing. So you would have to have it multiple times. And so I think that's part of the reason why it failed. The other thing is that we also don't see Sophie get sick in any other way. And my interpretation of what I've read about all these things is that they can make you feel very ill in other ways. And to me, to know that you've had an effect of the tea itself, you would probably have at least one other symptom. Right. I think for you to have taken enough tea for it to induce an abortion, depending on like what you're using, etc., you would probably feel sick in general, like even outside of the abortion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just because of all of the other compounds that are in that tea that you would 
ingested at high doses. And I think generally the efficacy of these was generally low. Even as you're drinking it over time, it's low. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So she drinks the tea and then how much time passes between that and the gathering? Is it like an evening? At least a day. It's like at least a full day. Yeah. Isn't it the next day? I think it's the the next day. And then they go to the gathering and she meets up with the midwife slash angel maker. She probably has a billion other names. And at one point she's like touching her stomach to feel around like kind of in the distance. (laughs) And Sophie goes back to Marianne and says that she's still pregnant. Can you talk a little bit about that situation? (laughs) We did talk about this amongst ourselves because we were trying to figure out like how you would be able to tell because like assuming that she has not quickened, Uh then you're not feeling for fetal movement. So there is this thing that you do. You can like approximate the gestational age of a fetus. So like how long someone has been pregnant by feeling their uterus through the abdomen. So like part of an abdominal exam when a pregnant woman goes in to get examined is you feel their belly and you do what we call palpation, which is literally like you feel the belly in a very specific way. Palpation is just a fancy word for touching. For feel, for touching. <laughs> but like <laughs> Thank you. you can feel like the curve of the uterus. Okay. And depending on where you can feel the uterus, oh. you can estimate essentially how far along a woman is in their pregnancy. Uh And I think at this time, people were better at this. But that doesn't look like what she's doing. Oh, okay. That's not what it looks like she's doing because she's not really, you really have to like get in there. I'm like doing the motion (laughs) that you can't see because this is a podcast. But like you really have to actually push into the abdomen to be able to feel like the curve of the uterus. And that doesn't look like what she's doing at the gathering. And it's hard to do that when somebody is standing up. Yeah, it's hard to do when they're standing Uh, up. Yeah. We're used to how we're taught and everything in terms of doing a physical exam is primarily laying down flat Mm -hmm. on your back. And so that's really the position that you would ideally have to be in for her to feel things. I also think she's too early for you to actually be able to feel much from that perspective. She might be a little too early. But I think that at this time, though, this person, the midwife or angel maker, whatever we want to call her, I think at this time, this type of a person would actually be fairly experienced Mm -hmm. in doing this. Mm -hmm. So I don't doubt that there is something that she is palpating that's telling her that this person is still pregnant. There's other things that happen to your body too that like we're so like caught up in Eloise and Marianne staring at each other across a fire that like maybe she was doing other things. <laughs> Who knows what <laughs> else was going on? Yeah, she may have been on her back at one point. That's right? true. She was maybe like feeling up Sophie in other ways. <laughs> well, we also don't know what Sophie says to her because Sophie, like she could literally have asked her, oh, did you bleed? And Sophie could be like, no. And then she'd be like, okay, well, you haven't miscarried yet. That's so. a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so she does some kind of 18th century French witchy palpating and she's like I know you're still pregnant come back in two days so let's talk about when she comes back in two days she is at the midwife's office which is also probably (laughs) her home her clinic yeah her clinic and we see her doing a few things and we had someone either email us or comment on IG that they were curious about the stuff that she was maybe using and where she might be putting it. So if you could walk us through that scene, that would be great. Sure. So where she's putting it is easier to answer because there's only a couple options. (laughs) (laughs) And one is in the vagina and the other is as a suppository, which we've already discussed is something that like was done historically to induce abortions. And as for what she's using, there are a couple of options And I think given where they are and like the time period, 
the most likely is that she's using juniper. Mm, okay. There's a specific species of juniper that's also known as savin, which is mentioned in a lot of historical texts as being used for abortion or inducing a period. And it was used both orally and also as a pessary, which means inserted vaginally. Mm. Hippocrates has mentioned it, and it is one of the things that's mentioned really frequently, actually, in a lot of historical Western European texts. So that's why I think this is probably like the most likely thing that she was using. But there's a specific oil in Savin called Savinyl acetate that basically causes relaxation of the uterus and decreased uterine movement. And they've done studies with this compound, like in animals, I think, like in the 19-something later. (laughs) (laughs) The 19-something or others. But they did some studies where they injected this oil like subcutaneously. That means under the skin. Under the skin, sorry. Thank you. And it did show that like it was pretty effective as an abortive. And so... I think that's probably the most likely thing that she's using. It does have some side effects like irritation and at really, really high doses, it can cause kidney issues. But a lot of, I think, herbal remedies at really, really high doses slash a lot of things in general at really, really high doses can cause kidney issues. But we don't actually know a lot of all of the side effects of juniper. And probably by inserting it as a pessary, so inserting it vaginally might mitigate some of Mm. those side effects because you're just putting it there. Mm-hmm. I think in the text it says that the effect is pretty much the same whether you do it orally, vaginally. But I think that in general that is a really really good point because in general you get less systemic or full body effects of medication that is taken locally or used locally rather than like taken orally which goes everywhere. Mm-hmm. So like as an example for birth control, a lot of people have side effects from like the pill, right? Mm-hmm. So you get like nausea, bloating, like you can have a lot of side effects all over your body. But if you have like an IUD, which is an intrauterine device that goes into the uterus and provides birth control there, a lot of people don't have any side effects with that because it's only providing an effect at the uterus, essentially. Right, right, right. But in this case, it could have been, she potentially could have taken it orally also, but at this point, she's already tried tea and stuff, so. Yeah. Maybe they were like, we just got to go directly to the source. Did you say that it would have been an oil, though? Because the person who wrote also commented that she, like, so she, like, puts it on her hands, right? And then she, like, takes right. a twig or something out of it. And yeah. It's like, thank you for, first off, for taking that twig out before you, you know, insert it vaginally. <laughs> I like, thought I saw her assistant person, who might have just been, like, her daughter, right. was making something as a mortar and pestle. Right. It seemed like she had some kind of dried something or other that she was adding. That she crumbled into it, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it was juniper alone, yeah. but I mm-hmm. think that juniper was probably part mm-hmm. of whatever the concoction was that she was making. This specific oil compound in juniper that causes the effect so we know that but like at that time period it probably would have been like juniper and then a bunch of other herbs a bunch of other things they also use things like lavender and myrrh and like things like that and all mixed together so i just assumed that it was kind of Mm -hmm. like part of her recipe i guess Hmm. whatever it is yeah i mean it looks like this paste that probably has like some kind of oil in it right right yeah. Right. yeah, I assume that she just mashed everything up, released all the oils. And then the other thing we kind of talked about because of where they are, which is seaside, mm. is whether or not it could have been laminaria, which is basically a type of kelp. And the reason why we thought this is because now to prepare for surgical abortions, we use what are called laminaria sticks, which is basically literally like kelp that has been dried and compressed into like a little stick that we use as what's called an osmotic dilator. So basically what that means is when 
that stick is inserted into the cervix, then it kind of draws moisture into itself and expands. And so that's how you dilate the cervix using oh. this. And so we wondered if that could be like something that's happening here too, but I think that's less likely because usually the context in which we use it is it has to be dried for it to have that effect. It doesn't actually have a specific chemical effect that is happening. Yeah. It's more like a physical effect that's happening because of the fact that it's dry and then it soaks up a lot of water. But just contextually, we're like, that's kind of interesting given where they are yeah. right now. Maybe she had some on the side and she sort of, you know, applied it. She might have had she some. Might have yeah, had she some. might have given it beforehand and we just don't see it. Yeah. But yeah, those are the two things that we were kind of talking about. I think juniper is the most likely mm -hmm. and that's probably the thing that's having the effect. Cool. One of the things we talked about was if she was having like an actual surgical abortion, like if she was doing instrumentation or anything like that. It's actually somewhat hard to tell, but I would say that given how fast the scene happens, probably yes. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, I was going to say probably no. Oh. <laughs> oh, you were going to say probably no? I was going to say probably yes, just because she sort of applies the stuff. But then we only see Sophie, mm -hmm. you know? And back in the day, they it was possible to do a surgical procedure. However the morbidity and mortality from something like this would have been quite high. So morbidity is having bad side effects causing long-term problems or problems, and then mortality obviously is causing death. And so I thought doing a surgical technique where she sort of had to go through and dilate the cervix a bit and then do essentially what we call a DNC or a dilatation and curatage where you kind of like take everything out was what she did. But Jen doesn't feel that way. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's definitely possible because, again, it is it is something that we know was done historically, but it's done very, very rarely because of essentially like how dangerous it was. Right, because of the risk. And how high risk yeah. it was at the time. One of the reasons why I don't think this is what happened is because if this was what happened... I feel like Celine would have made a point to at least show you like an instrument. Mm. You would have seen like something for the setting to show that it was like a surgical or an instrumentation happening. Mm. And you don't see anything there. I watched the scene again. I literally watched it yesterday just to make sure. But. Yeah, no, I agree. I, there was, you can't see anything that's going on. And I think that that's also part of the like brilliance of the whole thing is that abortion scenes in movies prior to this or around this have a tendency to be very focused on grotesqueness, body horror, like mm -hmm. more of an awfulness to it sort of thing. But I think that part of the like meta philosophy of this film is to try to create new images around things that we thought that we knew. Yep. And this is like another one of those things. And I'm not saying that she would have shown the instrumentation. 100% I don't think yeah. that she would have. I think that like given that she shows us like the preparation of the pessary that she's making yeah, sure. and that and that you see like you know her family essentially helping her do this and you see like the setting that you probably would have seen even in the background or whatever even panning through something, something yeah of what she was going to use which you don't yeah no i can see that i can see that she's very focused on like women's work yeah mm, true yeah she talks about it a lot and so yeah no i can totally see that oh kind of like marion's painting setup she might have had something similar yeah, for her right oh interesting yeah also, whatever happened to Sophie, she recovers very quickly. Great, yeah. Like she's a superhero or something like well, that? Well, we've already established that like she fell from the ceiling and was essentially she fine. She might be a superhero. So, she might yeah. be a super. <laughs> That's the twist. She falls from the ceiling. She's totally She can fine. run on the beach, like weighted down. It's no big deal. You know. Did you watch till the end of the credits when they show that Marvel? <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. post-credits post yeah, yeah. of Sophie. <laughs> 
<laughs> she can needlepoint an entire thing in a week. I mean, it is the case that abortion recovery, it's not arduous per se. It can be like, there's a lot of stuff that you're experiencing in terms of emotional things sure. that you're yeah. feeling. But in terms of like your physical recovery, even if it were a surgical abortion, you by the next day for the most part, like you might have cramping and bleeding to a certain extent, but like by the next day, you can pretty much resume normal activity. Okay. Nowadays. Nowadays. Mm-hmm. But 1770. <laughs> right, yeah. But in 1770, if she had a surgical abortion, I would be like, now she's going to get sepsis is what I think. <laughs> right, yeah. But if it was God. just like a pessary and then she ended up miscarrying, I think like when we see her laid out from it, it is because she's probably miscarrying and having a lot of cramping and bleeding and stuff like that. And then recovery from that is kind of like, honestly, recovering from a really heavy period for the most mm-hmm. part. And it's probably very uncomfortable. And she seems totally fine when Heloise is like, Sophie, are you awake? Let's paint. This is a perfect time to paint you. Yeah. It's like, what are we doing? We're going to paint. And I was like, can we give her like a day? Yeah. Give her a day. God, yeah. We've already established that she has super strength. So I guess she's yeah. at least putting on a good face. She probably has super yeah. healing. Yeah. She's like Wolverine. She has adamantium bones. <laughs> if Sophie had adamantium bones, Wolverine would have been a totally different That movie. would have been amazing. I would watch Can that Can someone please write this fanfic at least? <laughs> <laughs> Sophie as Wolverine. Oh, man. And on that note, <laughs> I would like to ask, so how would you rate this depiction? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I mean, 10 out of 10, she's not pregnant anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, good, good job, midwife. 10 out of 10. <laughs> also, she has no, as far as we can tell, no morbidity. Like, she's fine. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, great well, job. I mean, 10 out of 10. Great job. She's totally healthy. Yeah, yeah. She's also alive. Mm-hmm. Alive and healthy is a high bar to reach in 1770. Yeah, right, right. I'm going to yeah. say 10 out of 10 wobbly stools. Oh, nice. That's good. Yeah. For, good job for the midwife. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say 10 out of 10 twigs out of the pace. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much for going in depth on this topic with us. Where can people find you online? So you can find us online at docswatchpod.com. And then Doc's Watch is also on Apple, Spotify, like wherever you get your podcasts. All of those links are also on the website. And our Twitter and Instagram handle is at Doc's Watch Pod. So did we leave anything out? Have any burning questions for the next show? Let us know. You can email us at podcastofladyonfire at gmail.com. And you can find us on Instagram at podcastofladyonfire and Twitter at P-O-A-L-O-F podcast. And then finally, if you are enjoying our podcast, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show. Thank you for listening and thank you one more time, Deepa and Jen, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm that progesterone hype man again. <laughs> what, what? Uh, Sorry, I'll never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk to you next week. <laughs> Bye. Great.